the book of Colossians and the chapter number 2. I said at the beginning of this series that the first two chapters of this book are doctrinal. That is to say, they're mainly taken up with teaching. That's what doctrine is. Doctrine is teaching. So the first two chapters, doctrine. The second two chapters, third and fourth chapters, are about duty. That's how we live in light of the doctrine. So in the first two chapters you have doctrine, especially concerning Christ. In chapter 1, the topic is really the Christian and his Christ. And there we did already consider a description of the truth about Christ. We saw various things, great and wonderful doctrines about him. Uh, We mentioned the deliverance by Jesus Christ, what he has done for his people. Down there in verse 13 of chapter 1 we read, Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, that's Satan's kingdom, and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, or as it is in the margin, the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. That's what God has done for his people. He has delivered them. Uh, He not only has delivered them by Jesus Christ, but he has brought them into his kingdom. But as well as the deliverance by Jesus Christ, we noted the great doctrine of the deity of Jesus Christ. The fact that he is God. He's not an ordinary man. He's not just like everybody else in that sense. There's a sense in which he is like everyone else, except for sin. He doesn't have any sin. He never sinned. He never even thought about sinning. He could not sin. But he is not just man. He's God. He's the God-man, actually. God and man in two distinct natures, and yet one person forever. The deity of Jesus Christ. That's what we mean by that. He is God, manifest in flesh. And then the subject was the death of Jesus Christ. What he has done. He has made peace through the blood of his cross. We then learned about the demand of Jesus Christ. And it's really in verse 23 of chapter 1, where we are to continue in the faith. We are to persevere in the things of God. And then there's the declaration of Jesus Christ. And we looked at that last time, considering especially the ministry of the Apostle Paul as a faithful gospel ministry. So those are various truths that we would sum up as a description of the truth about Christ. But in chapter 2, it's not the Christian and his Christ that is in view, but the Christian and his creed. Now yes, it does relate to Jesus Christ, but it is a defense of the truth concerning Christ. And there are at least three topics that are brought before us in this second chapter. Number one, the life we must exhibit as believers. Secondly, the Lord we must exalt as believers. And thirdly, the lies, that's right, the lies we must expose as believers. So three simple things, the life we must exhibit, the Lord we must exalt, and the lies we must expose. Paul's great aim in this epistle, this letter to the Colossian church, is actually to warn God's people about false teachers and false teaching. That's his major aim and objective. 
Because there were those in that area who were bringing false doctrine into the church. They posed a threat to the stability of God's work. They were subverting God's people. And so he is very anxious, even from his prison cell, to write to them and to warn them about these false teachers. And also at the same time to encourage them to continue in that sound faith which they had been taught by Epaphras and even by himself. There are three things about Paul that we can see in the first seven verses of this chapter 2. And I want to consider all of those if we can tonight, if we get to them all. But there are three great things that are mentioned here concerning the Apostle Paul. And they're on the surface of this opening part of the chapter. Number one, let's think about his great care for them. Paul was a man with a pastor's heart. He loved the people of God. And every true pastor should love the Lord's people. And if a man is a pastor and he doesn't love the Lord's people, he shouldn't be a pastor. Because the word pastor really means shepherd or feeder. I heard a story of a minister in a certain town. And there were some really bad establishments that were being set up in the area. And he decided to throw his lot in with some of the people there in opposing those establishments that were coming in. And so he went to court and as part of the whole proceedings he was challenged under cross-examination by a lawyer representing these evil establishments. And the lawyer said to him, now you're a pastor, right? He said, that's right. He said, well, isn't a pastor a shepherd? That's right. He said, well, why are you worried about things like this when you should be taking care of your sheep? And the pastor said to the lawyer, I do take care of my sheep, but I also have to take care of the wolves. And that's why I'm here. That's what a true pastor does. He has a care for the Lord's people that will include seeking to warn them and to protect them from the wolves. There was an elderly lady who used to be very friendly with us back in Scotland when we were in ministry there. She used to call me up on the phone all the time. I know she prayed for us constantly until the time that she passed away. Her name was Jessie McDougall. Godly woman. I remember old Jesse used to say, Pastor, I'm praying the Lord will keep the wolves away from your flock. What a great prayer. That the wolves will be kept away from your flock. Because there are those who will seek to subvert the Lord's people. And I want you to notice here Paul's care for these folks. In verse 1 he begins, For I would that ye knew. I want you to know this, he says. What great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea. And of course Laodicea was a neighboring church in the same area as Colossae. And for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. And then look at verse 5. He says, for though I be absent in the flesh, I'm not there with you. Yet am I with you in the spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. 
Christ. Now, there's a continuation here from chapter 1 and verse 29. You should understand when you read your Bible that though there are chapter divisions, those chapter divisions sometimes come at unfortunate points. In the sense that if you don't read on from the previous chapter into the next chapter, you can sometimes miss the flow of what's being said. And here's an instance of that. In chapter 1 verse 29 he says, Whereunto I also labor. Now he's not talking about digging a ditch. He's not talking about you know, wheel, wheelbarrows and sand and all of that and shovels. But he's talking about spiritual work. He says, whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. Now, the word striving that's used there in verse 29 of chapter 1 is linked to the word conflict in chapter 2, verse 1. It's a similar root word in the Greek language. The Greek word from memory is agonizomai, from which we get agonizing or agony working that hurts and so what Paul is wanting these people to know is how much he cared for them he cared so much for them it hurt he was so anxious that they not be turned aside from the truth and so there was here a word for their encouragement would it not be an encouragement to them to have this man write to them, the great apostle, and telling them that he strived, that he worked hard in prayer, but even in writing, and thinking about what to say, it was hard work for him. He had them on his mind and heart. And yet the strange thing is, he hadn't met most of them. How do you know that? Well, because he says that in verse 1 of chapter 2, for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. You've never even met me. And he said in verse 5, chapter 2, though I be absent in the flesh, I'm not there. But yet I have this care for the Lord's people. Now, to be fair, Paul did know a man called Philemon. He did know Epaphras, obviously. And he also knew a young man called Onesimus. And you can read about him in the epistle to Philemon. They were all at Colossi. But most of the church members at the Colossian church and in Laodicea, he had never met. He'd never even seen them. And yet he cared for them. He greatly cared for their spiritual welfare. And he assured them as he wrote to them of his solidarity with them in the work of Christ. I'm with you. You know, it's good for us to take an interest in other churches and people in the kingdom of God whom we've never seen. This is a free Presbyterian congregation and there are many other free Presbyterian congregations, not just in North America, Canada and the States, but overseas. Now, I myself have met a lot of free Presbyterians in the home church, so to speak, back in Northern Ireland. Even there, there are some folks I don't know, especially now having lived in this country for so long, I've lost touch with a lot of them to a large degree. But there are churches that I have not visited. There are churches that you've never visited. You've never seen those people. You don't know them. You don't even know their ministers or their elders. But that doesn't mean that you can't take an interest in them. 
And that you shouldn't take an interest in them and pray for them. I've gone to congregations back in Northern Ireland. I've preached there, as I hope to do again quite soon. And I've gone to prayer meetings and I hear people praying for the folks in the Lehigh Valley. And they've never been here. They know nothing. They don't even know where the Lehigh Valley is. Some of them can't even pronounce it correctly. They don't know anything about the United States or any of the works here. And yet they're praying fervently unto the Lord that He would bless our congregations and our ministers and our people. That He would save souls here. That He would bless Christians here. That's a good thing. And Paul is an example of this. There are folks that pray for us who have never met us. And we should pray for them, though we've never met them. So this would be a real word of encouragement, would it not? But as well as the word for their encouragement, there was a wish for their establishment. This is Paul's desire. Verse 2 and verse 3. That their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What he's talking about here is his desire, his wish for their spiritual establishment. That they might be strengthened against these attacks of false teachers and that they might be united in their stand for the truth of God. This is what he means by their hearts being comforted but also being knit together in love. He wants them to be united together. The word actually in the Greek suggests being welded together. If you've ever seen two pieces of metal being welded together, that's a really strong bond when it's properly done. You can't take your hands like this and break it. It's two bits of metal that are really now united as one. That's what he's talking about here. And a true pastor, I say again, wants to see his people being so firm in the truth that they will be able to stand firm even on their own against error. They won't need him with them to help them to stand for truth. I love that portion in Acts chapter 8 where Philip draws alongside the chariot of the Ethiopian eunuch. This man was a religious Jew coming back from worship. He's reading the prophecy, Isaiah chapter 53. He doesn't understand it. He asks Philip to get up with him into the chariot and Philip starts to talk to him about Jesus. The Philippian, or the, the man there, the Ethiopian, he's convicted of his sins. He says, I believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he wanted to be baptized as a believer. And Philip, and he left the chariot, went down to the water, and Philip baptized him as a believer. And then the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away. Philip had something to do someplace else. But you know what it says about the Ethiopian? That he went on his way rejoicing. In other words, here's a man, he's met a preacher 
As a result of meeting him, he's gotten saved, he's gotten right with God, but he doesn't need the preacher to go on with God. He's still saved, though the preacher is taken away from him. He's going on with God. Now that doesn't mean we don't need preachers. I'm not trying to suggest we don't need ministers, we don't need teaching in the faith. What I am saying though is, if you've got the doctrine in your heart, you'll be able to go on with God and stand firm on the truth, even without anybody else supporting you in that. Paul had a pastor's heart. He wanted to see these people established in the faith. And he cared deeply about the work of God in all the churches. Just turn for a moment to an illustration of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians 11. There he talks about various trials that he had to face. I mentioned these in another message. All the things that he suffered. All the perils. But then he says in verse 28 of 2 Corinthians 11, as well as this, Beside those things that are without, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. The care of all the churches. Paul had a great desire in his heart as a pastor of God's flock for all of the Lord's people everywhere that they might go on with God. So I think this point, his great care for them is well established and it's well illustrated. But as well as his care for them, we can talk about his great concern for them. Now what was that concern? Consider Colossians chapter 2 verse 4. And this I say, I'm telling you all this, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. In other words, he was really concerned about false teachers and about false teaching making inroads into the church. And he goes on to speak of that further in the chapter. Look at verse number 8. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Look at verse 16. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink, or in respect of an holy day, or of the new moon, or of the Sabbath days. And then verse 18. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshipping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. Notice he uses this constant phrase about being beguiled. Beware lest any man spoil you. And then, lest any man beguile you. Verse number 18. What is he talking about? He's referring to the danger from false teachers. Verse 4, again, this is a verse I wanted to mention. This I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. There's that word, beguile. It means to mislead. 
Somebody beguiling you is someone who is misleading you, who's pulling the wool over your eyes. You know what that means? He's seeking to lead you astray by persuasive arguments. And this is what Paul is concerned about with the Colossians. He's afraid of them being led astray. Now, that's not just a concern that Paul had. That's something the Lord Jesus expressed in his ministry to his disciples. Go back to Matthew chapter 24. And this is really something that applies to us in every age. Matthew 24, and in the context, the disciples are asking the Lord about what the sign of his coming would be and the end of the world. There's a lot of people today thinking about that. Wonder what's going to happen at the end of the world. I wonder what's going to happen when Jesus comes. Well, the Lord dealt with that. Matthew 24, verse 4. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. That's how he sets the table to begin with. You've got to be careful about the teachings of men. There are folks who will tell you lies. There are men who will tell you things that are not true. Now, as we note in Colossians chapter 2, Paul acknowledges the fact in chapter 2 verse 5 that these people have up to that point been very firm and very strong. You see this? For though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in the spirit, joying, I'm full of joy and happiness, and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. He's acknowledging the fact that this is a strong church These are people who are doctrinally sound. And obviously Epaphras, aforementioned, had done a great job in teaching them the truth. And so far these people had held the line according to what they'd been taught. But like all purveyors of falsehood and false teaching, these particular false teachers at Colossae were persistent. One thing you find in the scripture about the devil the devil doesn't give up easily it's interesting that when the Lord Jesus Christ was tempted of Satan when he said three times it is written and the devil departed from him the scripture is very careful to tell us that the devil or Satan departed from him for a season for a season not Permanently. He was like one in the movies who said, I'll be back. That's the devil. He'll always be back. He will never leave you alone. And these false teachers, these purveyors of falsehood, are persistent. They don't give up easily. You've only to examine the behavior of false cults to know that that is true. You give them just a little opening at all into your home, boy, they'll be back, and they'll be back again, and they'll be back again, and again, and again, to try to get in. My mother would never let the Jehovah's Witnesses, so-called, into our home. And they used to, I'm sure, wonder why they weren't being brought into our living room, because my mother used to say, well, in Second John, it says 
that you're not to bring false teachers into your house, lest you be partaker of their evil deeds. They never used to like that too well. But that's the way it was. Once they get a chance to come into your home and start opening their little books and start teaching you, boy, they keep at it and keep at it and keep at it. They're persistent. The devil's crowd will never give up easily in peddling their errors and their falsehoods. So Paul here is thinking about the future. He's acknowledging, yes, you've done well up to now. You're a strong church. But I'm not going to wait till the damage is done. I'm going to speak to you and I'm going to act so that the damage will not be done in the future. You've heard of being forewarned so that you might be forearmed. That's what's going on here. Paul's telling them, now you watch. There are false teachers about in Colossae. They'll try their best to get in among you. And they'll lead you astray. You know, these words were prophetic. Because you'll notice that he mentions here in chapter 2, verse 1, and for them at Laodicea. See, this letter that was read out to the Colossians was also to be read to the church at Laodicea. You go to chapter 4 of Colossians, look at it in verse 16. And when this epistle is read among you, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that ye likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. So the Laodicean church got the same message. They got the warning about false doctrine. They got the warning about false teachers. But what happened? Turn over in your Bible to Revelation chapter 3. And in Revelation chapter 3, there is a letter that was written, given to John the Beloved by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And here's what it said, Revelation 3 from verse 14. And unto the angel, it means messenger of the church of the Laodiceans, write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. We've seen that sort of terminology in Colossians chapter 1. It's referring to Jesus Christ. He says, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee, out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I'm rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten be zealous, therefore, and repent. What happened? What happened to the Laodicean church? Well, they didn't do what Paul told them to do. They didn't hold fast to Christ as Paul urged them to do. I say again, Colossians 4.16 makes it clear that this letter, including these words of chapter 2, were read to the church at Laodicea. But they didn't take the warning about the danger from false teachers and false teaching. But as well as the danger from false teachers, Paul actually deals with the deceitfulness of false teachers. He uses that word beguiling. 
But he also uses this term in chapter 2, verse 4, enticing words. You'll also see it in verse 8. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. Persuasive speech and false reasoning. Somebody said, when someone or other comes with attractive arguments, do not be turned aside by that person and his fine-spun phrases. You know what happens to people? They're taken in by the sincerity of heretics. They're taken in sometimes by their oratory, and especially by their use, actually misuse of scriptures. See, if somebody wants you to take poison, they're not going to say, see this bottle here, it says on here, poison, do not ingest. Now, take a drink of that. Well, nobody's going to do that, right? No one's going to see this warning on the bottle and take that. So what does a person do that wants to poison you? They'll introduce a little bit of poison, secretly, along with that which is wholesome. Do you know that rat poison, rat poison is made up of more than 95% wholesome content and just under 5% is deadly. It kills. A little leaven, leaven of the whole lump. In other words, just a little bit of yeast makes the whole of the thing to be infected. All the deceitfulness of false teachers. And this is a constant refrain in the New Testament, even from Paul. Go back with me to Romans 16. Again, he's warning the church there. Paul was always warning Christians about false doctrine. Always doing it. Look at Romans 16, verses 17 and 18. Now, I beseech you, brethren. That, that means really, I beg, I'm begging you. Mark them. And it doesn't mean literally mark them. He means take note of them. Just watch out for them. Mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned and avoid them. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ but their own belly. Look at this. And by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. By good words and fair speeches Deceive the hearts of the simple. Folks are taken in by a smooth tongue. And again, Paul warned the Corinthians of this kind of thing. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Notice what he said there. 2 Corinthians 11 from verse 13. Speaking of some, he said, For such are false apostles. Deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. You know, they come to you as Christians. They come to you as Christian ministers. They come to you as genuine teachers of truth. Transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, don't be surprised, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, 
whose ends shall be according to their works. This is the deceitfulness of Satan. Oh, you know the picture that people have of the devil. Some sort of a fierce being with horns, hoofs, and a tail, and a pitchfork. Oh, you recognize Satan. No. He comes as an angel of light. Do you know that the Bible speaks of Lucifer as the most beautiful creation of God? I remember a preacher saying to a man, or a man saying to a preacher actually, because I knew the preacher. He said, you know, you're too easily deceived, preacher. If the devil put his horns in his pocket and tucked his tail in, you'd have him preaching on Sunday. Too easily deceived and taken in. People need to look at the warnings. And we need not be taken in by the sincerity of heretical teachers. And especially by their use or their misuse of the scriptures to back up their beliefs. See, that's what they will do. They'll say, oh, but the Bible says this. Here's a text of scripture. And they show you that to you and your bamboos. Oh, that's what it seems to teach. But you look at that text and you realize it's taken out of context. It doesn't fit in with all the other texts in the Bible that speak to that issue. So what is, what is happening is they're taking a text and they're making it into a pretext by taking it out of the context. You must always compare Scripture with Scripture. And if the Bible teaches something in one place, it teaches it everywhere. That's a rule of Bible study. If something is taught one place in the Bible, it'll be taught everywhere. And if it's not, it's not scriptural. You know, there are men and women too who are able to take the scriptures and make it say what they want it to say. Be able to produce all manner of weird and wonderful doctrines based upon words and put their own interpretation Upon it. Some time ago, there was a radio preacher who built an entire doctrine based on a scripture in the prophetic scriptures in Matthew about the end times when Jesus will come and how that people were to, to depart out of Jerusalem. And of course, having no reference whatsoever to the context. He taught that that meant that all believers in the present day were to leave their churches. And lots and lots of people did that. Campingites. They followed after the teachings of Harold Camping who had gone astray years before that. Wrote a book called 1994 which turned out to be a pile of rubbish. Then he went back on it said he had miscalculated and taught the same thing again, all over again, and the lemmings ran over the cliff following after him. Sad. Very, very sad. We need to be very careful about false teaching. There's a persuasibleness about words and speech that we have to be careful about. You know when Paul was preaching, he said to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 2 verse 4, And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit 
and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Remember the rat poison. It's more than 95% wholesome, just under 5% is deadly. Oh, we need to be careful. This is the case with false teachers, the cults, the charismatics. They use words that are synonymous with the great words of the Christian faith. They use the same vocabulary. But they mean something entirely different by that vocabulary. That's what we have to be careful about. If somebody stands up and they talk about Jesus, oh, I love Jesus, then we're supposed to think that they're a great Bible teacher. Then we find out that the Jesus they're talking about doesn't actually exist. Because he's not the Jesus of Scripture. He's a Jesus who accepts all manner of different weird things. Just because somebody mentions Jesus doesn't make them a Bible preacher. People talk about faith. They talk about loving God. They use biblical language. But they will do this to poison the minds of the unwary. You know, even, I was thinking about this one day, even the names of many cults are designed to deceive. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The Mormons. But that's the name of the church. The Worldwide Church of God. Armstrongism. The Church of Christ. Or the Disciples of Christ who are Followers of a Scotsman called Campbell who taught that baptism is the way to be saved. Baptismal regeneration. But they call themselves the Church of Christ. And you read in the Bible where Paul writes to the churches of Christ. And there you are. There's our church. And I could go on. People use terminology. And it's designed deliberately to deceive uh, thinking again of charismatic meetings and literature, there's a copious use of evangelical words and phrases. And yet they're teaching falsehoods. We need to not be deceived. Here's what Paul is saying. Just because it sounds good doesn't make it right and doesn't make it true. So what do we do? Well, we examine everything by the Scriptures. We bring the Bible to it. And not just part of the Bible. Not just one or two verses. The entire book. It says in Isaiah chapter 8 verse 20. If they speak not according to this word. It is because there is no light in them. That's a principle. If they're not speaking according to the Bible. Then you need to reject what is being said. And then there's a third thing here. Concerning Paul. Not only do we see here his great care for them and his great concern for them but his great command to them and basically the command of Paul to the Colossians is that they go on with God chapter 2 verses 6 and 7 as ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord and that's the question have you received Christ Jesus the Lord you know the Bible says in John 1 and verse 12 to as many as received him to them give he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. As many as received him. So if you've come to Christ, received his salvation, as ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. 
rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Now there's a lot here to get to. But the bottom line is there's to be a going on with Christ. You come to the Lord and that's not the end of the story. That's just the beginning of the story. You receive him as your Savior and Lord. You say, Lord, I will serve thee because I love thee. And from that point, having received him as your Savior and Lord, you continue just as you began. We receive him by faith. And so we walk in him by faith. That's what we continue to do. Verses 2 and 3 talk about this. About the acknowledgement of the mystery of God, the Father of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Here's all the wealth of conviction that comes from insight. There was to be a solid conviction of the truth if they were to be enabled to battle with error. And it really involves four things, very quickly, let me mention them. First of all, there is to be a going on. Walk ye in him. That's what verse 6 says. Walk ye in him. Now what does that mean? Well, there's terminology used in the Bible, walking, and it often is used to describe the Christian life. That's our walk. Uh, That's our daily living. Our walk. You'll find it uh, at least four times in Ephesians chapters 4 and 5. We are to walk in love. We are to walk circumspectly, which means picking our steps carefully. We are to walk not in darkness, but walk in the light, and so on. We're to walk as those who are called with a holy calling. Walk in Him. What does that really suggest? It is that we have Christ as the very environment in which we live our lives each day. We live in Christ. Going on with Him. So there is to be a going on. And then there's to be a grounding. See that word, rooted? It's verse 7. Rooted and built up in him. Now, the tense here in the Greek actually emphasizes an action which has been completed once and for all, but which has a continuing effect. There are actually four very significant words that are used in verse 7. They're very rich in meaning when we realize their significance from the original Greek language. Those words are rooted, built, established, and abounding. Let me just give you a little quick Greek lesson. All four of these words in the Greek language are called participles. Because they emphasize the subjects participating in the action. Now, the tense of the word rooted, as I said there, it emphasizes an action which has already been completed, but which has a continuing effect. That tense in the Greek is called the perfect tense, because it emphasizes a perfected or completed act. In other words, it's done. You're rooted in him. That's it. It's done. Believers in Colossae had been rooted in Christ, Because they trusted him as their Lord and personal Savior. So like a tree with its roots deep in the earth, these Colossians had placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Once they had done that and become rooted in him, 
There was no need to ever be rooted like that again. It's a once for all completed act, but it has a continuous, it has a continuing effect. But there's three other words here, and they're used in a different tense in the Greek language. And these words are used in what's called the present tense, and it emphasizes an action that is continuous. It's not something that's completed, it's something that's ongoing. And so you have the word built, or built up, and we could read that, we could translate that as being built up. Continuing to be built up. And that word pictures the process that should be going on in each and every Christian's life. You and I should be continually being built up in our faith. Now, how is that going to happen? You're rooted. You've come to Christ. That's a once for all thing that continues. But now you're built up in Him. You're going on with the Lord. You're now grounded. But you're also growing. Here's growth. You see, when you're rooted in Christ, that's like a tree with its roots deep down into the earth. But then there's growth. Built up. This is an action that is continuous as well. Being built up. It's a process of sanctification. Growing in the Lord. Getting stronger day by day. Being edified. You know what an edifice is, don't you? An edifice is a building. So when it talks about being built up, it talks about being edified. It means you're being built up in your faith. How does that happen? You read your Bible. You learn about Christ there. You are under the preaching of God's Word on a regular basis. You're taught the truth. You pray and you seek the Lord. And He guides and directs and teaches you. And you grow stronger as a Christian. That's what this is talking about. It's a process. An ongoing, lifelong process. And then there's the word established. Or confirmed, we could say. And that also stresses a continuous action, being confirmed in the faith. Just as building up has to be a continual process, so confirming was to be a continual process. Not something that just takes place one time and then it can be forgotten. The Christian's life should be characterized by a process of becoming more and more confirmed in the faith as time goes on. Becoming more and more like Christ. Then you have the word abounding. (coughs) Excuse me. The word abounding. You see it in verse 7. Abounding therein with thanksgiving. This is also a present participle. It also emphasizes a continuing process. And since the Colossians had been rooted in Christ as their Savior, Paul wanted them to be constantly built up in Christ Confirmed in the faith and abounding in thanksgiving. Going on giving thanks to the Lord. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. That's what Peter said. Fully settled in the truth that we've been taught. Truth that we know by experience to be true. We will have grateful hearts. That's how we should be as Christians. We ought to be thankful For all that the Lord has done for us. But we ought to be thankful continuously for what he continues to do for us. Because it's not over with. It's not over with once you just come to the Lord for salvation. That continues. 
And ultimately he will take us to heaven. To be with him for all eternity. Let me just say in closing that if we're thankful for the truth. And we're built up in the truth. We're not going to be ready to run after error and falsehood. The Lord will help us to be preserved from evil teaching. And to press on with him. May God do that for us. May we be those who have received Christ Jesus the Lord. Who continue to walk in him.